Thanks, Jen. Well, hey, Happy New Year, everybody. And uh, who still has their Christmas lights up? Anybody? Few? Good. We do too, and it's killing me. Like, it's absolutely killing me. But they're nice to see. Uh, when, turns about four o'clock whenever it gets dark. But uh, hey, all you guys out there, that Iron Retreat is really, really good. Like, I hope you never feel like we're trying to sell you on anything. I'm really not but it is the best men's retreat I've ever been on. And if you wanna go, you have any financial uh, just issues with getting there, let us know. We would love to give you a scholarship. I would personally love to help you get there. It is such a good weekend. So I think it's the beginning of March. I wanna make sure you check that out. Uh, also, as Jen mentioned, so we're now in the beginning of 2024. Wanna let you guys that this year as a North Star family, you guys gave $2.48 million to the mission of Go Love Live. And we, yeah, praise God. Like, I know this is gonna sound like a broken record, but the generosity of this community just continues to astound us. And so whether you wrote a check to North Star or you gave it directly to the Care Center, which is our flagship ministry, to our neighbors in need, that came in around 2.5 million. Now of that, 947,000, so we are just inching closer to a million dollars. That's gonna be a fun, a fun time when we hit that. 947,000 went out to local and global outreach. One of the things that's gonna enable the Care Center to do next year is give a car away every two weeks to somebody who's got a job, they've been trained, but they just can't get there. So yeah. But again, that's your guys' generosity. So from back to back to tried and true to our persecuted church partners, that's where all that goes to. That equates to about 38% of all that came in, went back out. Now it would have been higher. We had some unforeseen building maintenance stuff. If you guys have ever watched Star Wars, like the Millennium Falcon is this building. Like it is hanging by a thread. We had a few things come up. But again, I look at this every year. The average in our country is about 10 to 11% of what comes in goes back out. That is not me patting the backs of the leadership. We could not do that unless you guys were okay with it because you do get cheated. There are certain programming and things that we do not offer you guys. There are certain things on social media and technology and chairs and coffee and all that we just do not do. So don't go to any other church because you're gonna find out the things that we're not doing that everyone else is doing. <laughs> but you guys are okay with that. Some of you are parking over here, you're parking over there. But again, because of your willingness to sacrifice and surrender some of these things, we can give over, triple, sometimes quadruple the amount that's normal to give away. So thank you so much. And just our commitment is to continue to push that uh, as we can. Um, so with that said, uh, I wanna move into the message for today. And before I jump in into the passage, the scripture, the topic, um, I felt like God wanted me just to ask a very simple question. Who of you came back from this Christmas break feeling hungry for God? As if he actually may be the greatest appetite in your life. If that's you, could you stand up? Because if you're hungry, you have no problem standing up, right? Is there anybody, don't have to, you're not bragging about yourself, but you're just saying, hey, I'm hungry right now. Something's clicking. Because hunger is a gift that God gives us. It is more caught than, no, 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 stay up, stay up. You're not sitting down. <laughs> you're hungry, you don't want to sit down. So look at these people real quick. 
All right, so here's the folks who are saying they're hungry. Now I want the next group that's gonna stand up. I want you guys to keep your eyes open for them. Who's the group that's saying, I wanna be standing right now? I want that hunger, but if I'm honest, it's not there yet, but I want it to grow. If that's you, stand up. If that's everybody, we're gonna be in trouble. But anyway, <laughs> I want for those who said that they were hungry, I want you to reach around, put a hand on the shoulder of somebody who said, hey, I just wanna, I wanna get there, I'm not there yet. I don't know how this works, but what I know is that hunger begets hunger. And this is an opportunity when you have someone who says, I'm hungry, and somebody says, I'm not there yet, but I wanna be. So what I do in my life is I grab onto people who are hungry because I struggle with that. I'm not always finding the hunger. And I think what the Lord wants to do is use these opportunities to say, Jesus, you're doing something in their life and I wanna see that done in mine. And us talking and being open about that. Because if we're gonna go where we wanna go this year as a church, Hunger for God has to be our greatest appetite. It's just not gonna happen. So reach a hand out to somebody around you. Move if you got to, but let me pray. So Father, as we pray, I wanna pray for these two groups. I wanna pray for those who are hungry. I want you to protect them because the enemy is gonna rob that hunger from them the moment they step out of here today. So we pray protection. We pray thanksgiving. Lord, stir up more and more of that hunger. And for those of us who are saying, you know what, I want to be there, but I'm just not there yet. I pray against any shame, any condemnation that may be coming in. But Lord, would you birth hunger inside of them? Would you take something that some of us seem to have right now? And would you share it with those who are saying, I feel like I'm lacking, but I want it. And so Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. So what can we do to increase our hunger for God that it becomes the greatest appetite in our lives? I think this is an important question to ask because in 2024, we're gonna find some old appetites coming back around, fighting for a place in our soul. And if you haven't done the math yet, it has been four years. That's right, if you haven't figured that out yet, our country is heading back into another season of political campaigns and coercion. If you want to give a round of applause, you can, you can boo, however you feel about that. But as a church, our counterbalance to this, to this barrage of political tension is going to be that for the next three months, we're going on the campaign trail, not with elephants, not with donkeys, but with King Jesus. And we're going to do this by going through the gospels together. You guys are in a great mood this morning. Just keep clapping. You're destroying the nine o'clock. I mean, they were like, it was, it was rough. But anyway, I love them. They got up early. And so we're gonna go through the gospel accounts both on Sunday morning, but also in the reading plan. If you have not grabbed one, grab one through those double doors because that's what the gospels are. They're Jesus's campaign to be the king of our heart. That's what it is. The gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's actually the campaign of Jesus saying, I want to be the Lord and the Savior of your life. But this is a different kind of king, and it's imperative that we point that out. Because for a lot of us, when we think about these political times that are tense and there's controversies, we kind of want to picture Jesus this way. Do you guys know what this is? It's an old Catholic mural you'll see behind me, and it's called Buff Jesus. That is... And so if I'm honest, when these times of tension hit and we walk into them, this is how I want to picture Jesus because I want a Marvel superhero that's going to crush the opponents instead of a sacrificial lamb that's going to save their souls. But unlike politicians of today, and I don't mean all of them, 
There's plenty of great politicians. Jesus wasn't worried about winning the popular vote. In fact, Jesus made sure that he lost that race. For Jesus, the chief concern of his life was simply this, and I hope me just saying that statement makes you want to listen. The chief priority of Jesus was simply pleasing the one who sent him. Look at John chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus says, The one talking about God the Father who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And I'll tell you, my personal conviction is that should be our priority as well. Our singular, all important priority of life is pleasing the one true living God. But being in a season of battling opinions and perspectives, what happens is our attempts to persuade and to please others can become the priority. And when that happens, I've noticed in my life, I become overwhelmed and I start fighting battles that the Lord has never called me to fight. If you wanna find yourself in a place of frustration, fight a battle the Lord has never called you to fight. That's not where we wanna be. So our starting point, as it should be with everyone who calls him a Christ follower, is to learn to be like Jesus and how he lived out his relationship with God the Father. And you would think it'd be something a little different than that. That the starting point would be, how do we learn to be like Jesus and how he lived out his relationship with the missing and the marginalized and God's kids? But no, the priority is, how do we learn to be like Jesus in how he lived out his relationship with God the Father? And that's a strange statement because you think, how can God be in a relationship with God? But if you go back to the theology of the Trinity, we know there's the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Jesus the Son. Now, this is mind-blowing. If you can comprehend this completely, write a book and make millions of dollars off of it because it's so hard to fathom in our human minds. But that God is actually three separate beings. Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Father. They're all fully God, but they act as three different people with three different functions and responsibilities. And so that's how you can have a relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to open up the first gospel account in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to look at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus, because this event tells us so much about that relationship between the Father and the Son. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Matthew chapter 3, also be on the screen behind me. Here's what it says in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In other words, John is saying, absolutely not. I am not doing this. I'm not even worthy to carry around your shoes. You need to baptize me. And really, you can't blame John in this moment. Aren't we all asking the same question? Like, why would the sinless Savior of the world need to be dunked in a river by some wild bug-eating baptizer? Like, it makes no sense in the world. Jesus has nothing to repent of, and John is calling people to repentance. And so here at North Star, we talk about baptism being this outward expression of an inward transformation. I wanna make sure we're all clear that Jesus cannot experience inward transformation. There's nothing to transform. He's already completely perfect. And so why would he take this risk? And it does feel like a risk because if you're trying to win the popular vote, 
you wouldn't get in line to be baptized by John because you know who's in line to get baptized by John? You have Jewish sinners. You have Gentile heathens. And so imagine a political, uh, excuse me, a presidential candidate today walking into a rehab facility but has no problems with addiction. And what if somebody snapped a picture of that and they posted it everywhere? You would no longer vote for that candidate because you'd be like, well, they obviously have an addiction. They obviously have a problem. Look at the door they're walking through. That's a lot what's happening with Jesus here because when he gets in line to be baptized with John the Baptist, everyone can immediately be thinking, well, obviously this guy's not perfect. He's not sinless. He can't be the savior of the world, but Jesus does it anyway. Unbelievable when you think about the risk that feels like. And so Jesus demands John to baptize him and he gives us a reason right away. Here's why he does it. Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us, John, you and I, to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. The key word there is fulfill. The reason why Jesus is going to be baptized here is because he's interested in fulfilling prophecy. The only way that all righteousness can be experienced is all these prophecies have to be fulfilled. And what we learned earlier in this chapter is the prophecy that's about to be fulfilled right now is Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, which is the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And Jesus is saying in this moment, this is it. Isaiah 40 verse three, written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This is it. It's happening right now. So not only are they fulfilling a prophecy, but Jesus is saying to everybody, I approve the ministry of John. If you're questioning if this is legit, I'm telling you right now, I approve. And so that's all John needed to hear because the very next thing we read is that John consented. And so they jump in the river and this is the public baptism of Jesus. But that wasn't the only reason why that Jesus insisted on being baptized. And I just wanna point this out quickly. Jesus had a heart to immediately be identified with sinners not because there's any sin in Jesus' life. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus is a high priest that can empathize with our weakness, but is not sinned at all. And so what he's doing by being baptized is saying, I identify with you and I'm gonna do everything that I'm asking you to do. So if you ever get in an argument with like a friend or a family member and they're like, I'm never gonna be baptized. Give me one reason why. We can point back to the life of Jesus and say, you know, there's all these theological things we can talk about, but if Jesus is truly the Lord and the savior of our life, then we will do what he did. I know there's more to the conversation than that, but that's another reason why he wants to identify with each of us. And so we can look at him and follow his lead. Let's go on to verse 16. You'll see a little bit of a picture behind the text here. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up and out of the water. It's one of my favorite pictures of the baptism of Jesus because it reminds us that the baptism is actually a foreshadowing of what's to come. Back in that time, a body of water represented death and chaos. And so Jesus going into the water says, I'm gonna plunge myself completely into death and chaos. And of course he does that on the cross. But when Jesus comes out of the water, it's foreshadowing his resurrection. I was dead, but now I am alive. And so when you get baptized, you guys watch us do that up here. We always talk. When I go in the water, I'm participating in the death of Jesus and I'm coming out alive. It's a symbolic way of saying, I have received the gift he's given me. 
Then it says at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Now, if you're in our reading plan, you noticed about a week ago, we started reading Genesis chapter one along with Matthew chapter one. And what does it say in verse two? that the spirit of God hovered over the water. You go look at all the translations in the Hebrew, it actually refers to the idea of how a dove would hover over the water. And then what do we see in Matthew three? Again, the spirit descending like a dove hovering over water. Is that coincidence? Is that poetry? Or could it be that God is bringing a megaphone to this moment and he's letting everybody know that the perfection that creation lost is being returned in Jesus. That is no accident that there's a hovering of the spirit in both those moments because what was lost by the creation, just a couple chapters later in that account, it's gonna be returned through Jesus. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And I tell you, this moment is unique for many reasons. One of them is that we see the entire Trinity we see Jesus, the son being baptized. God, the father is speaking. And then again, the spirit descending like a dove. That's interesting. That's theologically rich. But I'll tell you what really grabs my heart. Like what's been wreaking havoc on my soul is something else that is pretty simple and way more practical. And I came across this in our men's group. Meets at seven o'clock right over there in the care center lobby. And one of our leaders, Brad Schwan, asked all the guys that morning, he said, when were the miracles of Jesus done? Think about that. Kind of an open-ended question. One of the guys said, well, I think in the gospel of Luke, it's here and then it's there in Matthew and in Mark. And we really couldn't answer the question. And he said, okay, let me make it easier for you. Think about this. He said, all of the miracles of Jesus were done after he was baptized. And we also had this blank look on our face, like, okay, like tell us more. Why is that important? And again, none of us really had a clue. And he said, well, let's read what God says to Jesus during the baptism. This is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. And the point that Brad was making is that God the Father declares that he is pleased with Jesus the Son before any ministry is ever done. There's no healings. There hasn't been a deliverance. There hasn't been a salvation. He's not walking on water. He hasn't fed the 5,000 yet. He is saying, I am pleased with you, even though none of the ministry, none of the highlights, none of the healings, it hasn't happened yet. I don't know about you, but in my life, when I am pleased with somebody, it typically comes after some sort of accomplishment, some sort of response or responsibility handled and done and lived out. But God the Father says, I am well pleased and you have done nothing yet. No healing, no salvation, no deliverances. And I think the reason why this is so important, my opinion, is that God is so pleased with Jesus because of what he calls him in that moment. He calls him son. God could have chosen any title to call Jesus in that moment. Could have called him Lamb of God, Mighty Counselor, Prince of Peace, or Wonderful Counselor. Sorry, I got that wrong. Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor. He could have called him Prince of Peace, but instead he calls him Son. And all those other titles, if you notice, they all convey a value of responsibility. 
Lamb of God, what does the Lamb of God do? Sacrifices in our behalf. What does the Prince of Peace do? The responsibility is bringing peace to each and every one of us. But instead he calls him son. And not just because Jesus is his son, because son is the only name of Jesus that immediately confirms relationship. And so what God's doing in this moment, we can look at all the responsibilities, but right now I'm gonna call him son. All the other titles are worthy and they're great, but son immediately conveys and confirms relationship. And so I believe God calls him son because what pleases God more than anything else is the relationship, not the responsibility. And I think that's what pleases Jesus as well. I think that's why Jesus is like, let's get baptized, right? Let's do this now before I go out in my ministry because he is declaring his relationship with God the Father. And so when you're baptized or if you've been baptized, that's what you're declaring, that my relationship with God the Father is the most important thing in my life. And so therefore, if we wanna be like Jesus, our priority will be relationship with God, not responsibility to God. That's what we see in the baptism of Jesus. And so what I wanna do is I wanna just cast a little bit of vision of where we wanna go as a leadership in this next year. And one of the things we wanna see is a group of people, the people of North Star driven by this relationship, not the responsibilities. And where I've gotten tangled my whole Christian experience is when it comes to the first and second commandments. Let me walk you through this real quick. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's from Matthew 22. I think you'll see it on the screen behind me. And in this commandment, I've always believed, let's just get to that in heaven. Like, great idea. God, we will be with you in heaven. There'll be no people to save, no healing to bring, no deliverance to happen. Let's just get to the first commandment when we get to heaven. Let's make the second commandment a priority here. And the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's no wonder that over the years of North Star, we have initiated hundreds of ministries that minister to other people. And praise God, that's a good thing but we've probably only initiated like a dozen ministries that minister truly and totally to God. When I say minister to God, the, the kind of ministries that we're with him and building in time and space to love him, to be with him and to actually acknowledge his presence above all else. And a lot of that's on me because I'm like, I'm this hyper doer. And so for years, I just wanted to initiate all these second commandment ministries and things that we can do for other people. That's, that's just part of my immaturity. And so I was telling the staff the other day, what's gonna have to happen if we wanna see revival, if we wanna see breakthrough, we need to switch these things. And so behind me, you'll see, I, I gave them a chart and I said, that first commandment has to come first. And so that means that the fire in the furnace of this church needs to be us first and foremost ministering to God. Because what happens is when you throw logs on that fire, when you fan that flame, it will grow and it will begin to impact, it will start to ignite greater impact in the second commandment ministries. Now there's a problem with showing you this chart is that you can look at this and go, oh boy, we're gonna become that church right? A bunch of navel gazers that are just sitting off in the prayer room, not doing anything else. And that's not where we're going. We will never, ever, ever stop being aggressive 
and ministering to other people. Never. It's impossible at this point. That will never happen. But then somebody else asked another question. They said, so are you telling us that the first commandment is really just a means to an end to serve the second commandment? That would be heresy. We would not want that. Because even if there was no other people to love, we would still be doing the first commandment. We would still be putting tons of energy and time. God, you are good enough to love, even if there's no ministry to do down the road. But they don't exist in a vacuum. And so what we have to acknowledge is that this first commandment has to be first. Because when Jesus brings it up in Matthew 22, he is not saying, I want you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in heaven. He's saying, I want you to do it right now. And he calls it the greatest, most important commandment. And so part of my repentance is, Lord, I have not made the first commandment first. And so when we talk about prayer rooms and the pathway journal and things that we do at the end of our celebrations, it's us trying to put the first commandment first. Because if that happens, I do believe it's gonna ignite greater impact in everything else we do. The first commandment has to be first. And so when I think about this call to be like Jesus, where my mind immediately goes, is I gotta go serve in the care center, go on a mission trip and then volunteer back in kids. Like that's what you gotta do. And those are all good biblical things. But I don't want us to forget the words of Jesus in Matthew seven. These are some of the scariest words in the Bible. Here's what he says in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day of the final judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Basically, did we not do all sorts of great ministries to bless other people in your name? Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you can move the mountains of ministry and still not please God. You can move everything every mountain of ministry and still not please him. And so what we see in the baptism of Jesus is that God values the relationship over the responsibilities. And so my question as we wrap up here is, do you have a relationship with Jesus? I'm not talking about coming to church once a month or reading your Bible from time to time. I'm not talking about doing the good deeds I'm not even talking about praying a prayer when you were in seventh grade. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I believe it does start with a prayer, inviting Jesus into our heart as our Lord and Savior who died on the cross for our sins and rose again to give us life. If you turn to your good friend, your neighbor, somebody you're close to and asked, do you think I have a relationship with Jesus? What would they say? I don't offer this as shame or guilt at all because it's not my job to judge where anybody's faith is. I just think I would be a terrible, terrible leader if we didn't just pause here and say, let's remember it's all about the relationship. That's what truly saves and helps us experience heaven on earth. If you've never given your life over to Jesus and you wanna start that relationship today, we're gonna have prayer teams down here later on that would love to pray for you. So here's how I wanna close. We were having a, um, I would call it a Christmas dinner, but that's kind of weird. We were at Kenwood Mall at the food court. I don't know if it was Christmas or Thanksgiving, but we were there. 
me and uh, Emily and my daughter, Emma, and we had Chick-fil-A, but I was still hungry. And I thought, man, maybe two gold star cheese conies would be the way to wrap up this meal. And so I went over there and I'm just, I'm kind of in a spiritual place. And we train here at North Star that when you guys go through the line at Kroger, McDonald's, Starbucks, anywhere, what you're supposed to be thinking is, okay, I'm going to ask them, how is your day going? And when they come back, the person who's working there and says, it is going terrible. Open door. Oh, well, what would make it better? And then hopefully they say, well, it'd be better if, I don't know, fill in the blank. And you say, okay, well, can I pray for you about that? It almost works every time. I'd love to say 100%, not necessarily the case, but almost every time I've tried that, somebody's been open to prayer. It's amazing. And so I'm going up there. I'm kind of having this conversation with God. Nobody's in line, nothing to be scared, you know, be afraid of. And I get there and the young gentleman taking my order looks miserable. This is going to be a layup. Hey, man, how you doing tonight? Terrible. And I don't know what hit. And I just said, okay, can I have two cheese conies with onion and mustard? <laughs> I said nothing. Gosh. And they just kind of moved me down the line. I'm like, all right. And then I'm facing this lady. And so I'm like, all right, Lord, all right, we're, we're going to do this. Let's ask, let's ask her, how are you doing tonight? I am terrible. My morning was horrendous. I just can't wait for this day to be over. And I just stared at her, got my cheese conies, and I left. I have no idea why. I get back with Emily and Emma. I sit down there, and I finally look at them. I'm like just nibbling the cheese cone in guilt. Like, what am I doing? Like, I'm supposed to be a Christian. Like, and I said to them, I said, hey, I had this prayer opportunity. I just blew it. I don't know why. I'm going back. So I go back over there, and God is making this so easy. There's lines at every restaurant. No offense to Gold Star. Maybe this is why, but there's absolutely no line at Gold Star. And so I come back up, and I find that lady, and it was so awkward. And I just said, hey, you, you shared with me that your morning was horrible, but I didn't ask you what happened. And it was like we were long-lost friends. She goes, oh, you got to hear this. My car broke down. There's no way it's going to be repaired. I don't know what I'm going to do. I finally have this job. And I just said, can I pray for you? And she was like, yeah, let's go for it. So we start praying. And then I can't believe it took me to the very end. And right when I'm leaving, I said, oh, by the way, we have this thing called the Care Center and they've got cars they can connect you with. And it was just a great connection. I have no idea if she ever called or not. But as I walked back with this giant smile on my face, the question I've got for you is how do you feel, how do you think God was feeling in that moment? You think he had a huge smile on his face? Like, ah, there you go. Now you got it, David. He never had that thought for a moment because God wasn't interested in the result of that moment, whether I prayed for somebody or not. I believe that what he was so thrilled about is that he and his child had a dialogue of frustration and of excitement and ups and downs for those 15 minutes. That's what he desires. It's not the result. It's okay if I never would have gone back and prayed. Like we should push for that, right? That'd be good. I think he loves that we got a prayer moment there, but it wasn't about the result. It was about the relationship. And that's a lie I have believed for so long that God was only gonna smile, right? When I took that swing and I cracked it over the fence. He's like, I just wanna be with my boy. I just want us to have a relationship. And so for the next three weeks, 
we're gonna look at this idea of being like Jesus and how he was in his relationship with God. And then about three weeks later, we're gonna get into his relationship with the missing, excuse me, God's kids. And then three weeks after that, into his relationship with the missing and the marginalized. But for the next couple of weeks, I wanna challenge you guys. I want you to grab one of those pathway journals, especially when it comes to January 10th. I think everyone's gonna to wanna to do that prompt. Okay, there's my tease. Go get a book, January 10th. It's a really great way to build a relationship with God. We got our prayer rooms on Tuesday and Friday at noon. And then baptism. Like if you've not been baptized yet, let's declare our relationship with God. We will baptize you anywhere at any time. If you wanna do the Little Miami in January, we will do it. Cody would be thrilled to baptize you <laughs> on that day. Like he'd have no problems. He would love that. I would love that too. Let's stand. Um, if you do wanna get baptized, there's, a, there's an email. You can always reach out to us. Worship team's gonna come up. We got the uh, 10 minute donut thing afterwards if you guys wanna join us. But let's, let's continue to worship. We have a chance to take communion, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The prayer teams will be up here. Whatever you would like prayer for, maybe for you, it's just that lie that God wants to build the results before the relationship. And that's just not true. But we come down and we receive prayer. We are building that relationship. We are developing and stirring a hunger inside of us. So let me pray. So Father, thank you for everybody here. Thanks for just getting to be part of such an amazing, amazing community and be a part of something that you're doing. Lord, I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross and your return from the grave and the power that comes by saying yes to your name. And so Lord, I pray your power would be unleashed in this time. Chains and shackles would be broken. We would see you rightly, Lord. We would see you rightly. I get the sense that that is maybe a struggle with some of us here today, that we're just not seeing God rightly. And it's not because we're selfish or we've done anything wrong. It's just that the picture's been painted wrongly for us maybe our whole lives. I pray against the condemnation. That is not your fault. So Jesus, we wanna see you rightly this morning. Work in those tender places of our heart, of our hearts and our minds. It's in your name we pray, amen. As you feel led, come up, receive prayer, take communion. Let's worship.